Advertisements suck. Enjoy the show. The Minimalists. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is out today. He has some sort of weird thing going on with his eyeball, and I think he was terrified to be on camera today. But don't worry. We actually have three guests today because today is a celebration. It's our anniversary. Cue Raphael Sadiq. Was that Tony, Tony, Tony? It's our anniversary. We've got podcast Sean and Jordan No More in the studio with me as well. But we have three amazing guests today. Really a celebration and a gift for all of you. We got you an anniversary present. It's been 10 years since we started The Minimalist. Literally 10 years ago this week, December of 2010, Ryan and I started TheMinimalists.com. It was about a year and a few months after my mother died, my marriage ended. It was a few months after Ryan had, had done his packing party, and we had simplified our lives. We wanted to share that story with everyone else. And so for seven bucks, we became TheMinimalists.com. And we started the blog, and from there, there was this whole unraveling of the last 10 years. And in fact, on the Maximal episode this week over on Patreon, theminimalists.com slash support, if you want to check it out, we're going to do a long episode. Ryan and I are together. We're going to do a long episode about the last 10 years. We're going to answer some questions from the audience over the last 10 years, but we're also going to really dive into some things that maybe we haven't even talked about on the podcast, because the podcast is also... Uh, also has an anniversary this month. It's five years old as well. So five years into The Minimalist, we'd already put three books out there. We had gone on a bunch of tours. We started a publishing company. Uh, we've been blogging for years. But then we started the podcast. We had just finished filming our first film, Minimalism, for Netflix. And actually, it was before it was the, the Netflix thing was even there. We just had finished filming it. And we thought, hey, let's start a podcast. We both really enjoy listening to podcasts. So here we are, 10 years later or five years after the podcast started. And we have some special guests today. Ryan and I, over the course of the last seven, eight months, something like that, we've been doing these quarantine conversations. In fact, we, we switched them to quality conversations uh, as the quarantines and the lockdowns began to lift in, in different locales. And so we've done 50 different conversations, these short conversations that are anywhere from 10 minutes to 20, 25 minutes long over on our private podcast. And what we wanted to bring you today were three of those conversations, three of our favorites. It's really hard to pick because there are so many just great conversations. And it's been an exercise for me in listening to people a lot more. And I've really enjoyed these short conversations. It's almost like calling a friend and then just recording it and putting it on a podcast. There's no definitive format. There, it's not necessarily an interview. It's a conversation between two people. And I've been listening to a lot of different viewpoints over the course of this year on these conversations. 
And we've been spawning conversations with a Q, by the way, quarantine conversations or quality conversations. And so we're going to dive into some of those today. We'll also have an added value segment and uh, do right here, right now at the end. But I thought maybe we could go ahead and, and dive in right now. The first conversation we have is with Glennon Doyle. Now, Glennon, she wrote a great book this year called, well, she released a great book this year called Untamed. And it's really a... Uh, story about a woman finding herself. And so we got to talk about that, what it means to to find yourself. You'll, you'll hear that in the conversation, but we'll also put a link to her new book, Untamed, in the show notes. All right, I'll see you in a few minutes, but enjoy this quality conversation with Glennon Doyle. Well, Glennon, I was, I was hoping to talk to you about, because we, we are in this, this quarantine, I think for, for many people, this is maybe an inciting incident, and and they didn't even realize it. I know in in your in your new book, uh, you 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 talk about um, this sort of the, the starting over, finding your yourself sort of thing. And I'm thinking this might be this might be the the moment for a lot of people to to look inward and, and somewhat find themselves. I think you're right. I think you're right, whether we like it or not, right? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I think that you know, sometimes it requires the the car crash of metaphorically speaking before we before we course correct. I think so, and it's interesting that you say that because I have, I run a nonprofit that that um, helps people who are trying to make ends meet. So I know right now that the real loss and pain is just staggering. Um, and then there's this double loss going on for people, which is that. While they're dealing with all this pain out in the world, we are all suddenly stuck in our homes um, without all the distractions that we usually use to keep ourselves from sort of facing the truth of being human, which is that we are all incredibly vulnerable and no one's really in control. And at the end of the day, we really just have each other, right? Um, I think of it in terms of of, we're kind of like those snow globes and we keep ourselves shaken up all the time so that yeah. we don't have to deal with like the thing in the middle, which is, um, you know, just the pain and fear and vulnerability of being human. And right now it feels like we have sort of a great settling, like a forced settling where everybody just is stuck with the pain of being human. Um, you know, the pain in our relationships, all my friends who, you know, we're sitting next to, on the couch next to our partners now going, all those little cracks that we keep ourselves busy to distract ourselves from are just sitting right there. And um, it reminds me very much of early sobriety for me, actually. How so? Well, because getting sober is just a stilling of the snow globe, right? It's just we use all of the things like I mentioned busyness before because that's a more socially acceptable addiction, but you know, I used booze and drugs and food. Um, everyone has their things, shopping, snark, um, scrolling, whatever it is. And then recovery comes and it's just a forced settling. It's just a, a, a you get, you get, um, everything taken away or you voluntarily, um, give it away that keeps you from facing life on its own terms, right? Why do, why, why do you think that we, we have trouble dealing with that, that discontent and we continue to shake the, the snow globe, as you put it? 
Well, because I think the truth is in the stillness, right? Um, everything that we have not healed, um, all of the painful emotions that we know, no one ever taught us to deal with because we live in a culture that worships happiness, right? Mm. Um, the cracks in our relationships, our, you know, dreams, our dreams that we feel like a braver, bolder version of ourselves would do, but we're not doing them. All of our pain and potential is inside of stillness and pain and potential are two things that are very hard to sit with, right? So that's why, because it's easier to, to um, distract ourselves from those things than to face them. But the beautiful thing is that anybody who's lucky enough to have gone through any sort of recovery program will tell you. And, and, and why I, I see all the real pain and yet have great hope for this moment or what comes next, I should say, is that in my life, I have found that every single good thing, my marriage, my health, my career, my even my personality, all of it is a result of sitting in that stillness and feeling all of that pain and digging into that potential and um what comes next is usually something new and beautiful you talked about finding a, a braver bolder self and i like that i think that sometimes we have a, a misconception about what that looks like we, we think that a a braver version of ourselves is some sort of perfect infallible person but it doesn't sound to me like that's what you're actually talking about here yeah i mean i stopped waiting to become a grown-up a long time ago, I figured out that never happens, right? We never get to that <laughs> thing right. that we're all waiting for. Um, I keep just waking up every day and I just keep being myself. <laughs> so that's tragic. Um, no, I mean, you know, those, and I don't even mean anything big and bold. I, I don't. I mean, you know, those things that we want to say, but we're not saying them. Mm. Um, the things we want to try, but we're not trying them. But just, just those little things that that um, that are just right on the other side of discontent. And I think that we are all afraid to admit that we have any discontent or any longing or that we can imagine anything better for ourselves because then that might mean that we have to do something about it. Yeah, right? and, and so, so in, in a way we, we long for sometimes the wrong things, the, the temporary pacifiers, the, the ephemeral pleasures, the things that don't make us better men and women, better human beings, but uh, that that distract us in the moment. Yeah, and I think that makes perfect sense that we can be forgiven for that. I mean, we live in a in a capitalistic culture. I mean, you know, marketers' jobs, their whole job is to sit in rooms and identify the basic needs of human beings and then attach products to them, mm. right? So that's what they do. That's their job. They do it all day. They're really good at it. It's not subtle. It's literally their job, right? So, you know, when people, a woman said to me at a, at a speaking event, I put this in Untamed. She said, I can't go around trusting my longing or my desire. I mean, I long for a bottle of Malibu every night. Should I just go for that? And I said, no, you, you don't. You don't go for that. And you don't trust that. First of all, I know you don't trust that because you brought it up to me. Right, right. right. You, right. You, you know, you know better. When you start asking a question like that, the answer is often embedded in the question itself. Exactly, exactly. You already know. And second of all, 
when you when you have a surface desire like the one you just like what you just said about you know the things that we think we want if you don't trust it then you just have to look below it to the deeper desire so what's beneath that bottle of malibu what human deep human need did those marketers attach that to it's it's rest it's escape mm. right right what you really want your deeper desire the desire beneath the desire is for some freaking rest yeah and and, and we have to ask the the why behind it right because you, yeah. if we don't ask why then we we go for that surface level thing whether it's the the bottle or it's the the rolex and i, I know for me you know throughout my my 20s which feels like a lifetime ago now i i you know, I, I wanted the, the the nice things. I really longed for them. I thought I longed for that, but I was really longing for what the the marketers and advertisers were selling underneath that the the sort of acceptance of others, the 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 love or the uniqueness. You know, and, yes. and 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 I think that if we can get beyond that, you realize that of course the Rolex will will, will never get you that, but you can get what you actually long for. Yeah. And no matter how many Rolexes you get, you will realize that, that it never works because you can't ever get enough of what you don't need, right? Mm. So that's why, I mean, I have a friend, I put this in the book, I have a friend who was obsessed, Joshua, with getting this beach house, okay? She wanted to rent a beach house for the whole summer. She did not have the money for it. It was a very bad decision. <laughs> and we kept talking about it, trying to get to the desire beneath the desire, and she burst into tears when in the middle of our conversation, she said, I just see all these people with their families at the beach and they look like they're having, they're connected and they're having so much fun. And I just feel so disconnected from my family. We don't even talk anymore. By the time we got it to the end of the conversation, we figured out, you know what we should do? We should get a basket. And everyone in your family should put their phones in the freaking basket before dinner. And you guys should sit together for an hour and look at each other and talk to each other. And she tried that, and we laugh now today because that, you know, 15-cent basket was a lot cheaper than a beach house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You you can really buy a solution to to your problems. It's true that money does solve money problems, but most of our problems, once our basic needs are met, tend not to be – uh, uh, money problems at all. And, and in fact, we, you know, the house example is such a, a great example. I know that, that often when there are, you know, failing relationships and we, what we try to do is like, well, I'll, I'll buy my way out of this. If we just had a better house, that would fix my relationship. If I just had the right car or, or if I just had a kid with this person, I'm sure that would fix the relationship. <laughs> and, and, and of course, all that does is complicate things. That's right. I mean, Joshua, I convinced myself that I would listen. I really should have had this talk a couple years ago with you because I convinced myself that I would be a better writer if I finally had an office, okay? <laughs> because I um, write. I started writing um, when I lived in such a tiny house that I, I wrote in the closet, okay? So mm-hmm. I had, I wrote between like piles of underwear and jeans and, I, and that's where I wrote my books. And so I decided, okay, if I can write books in a closet, imagine how good I would be if I had like a real grown-up office, right? So my wife and I moved. I got a big office. And do you know where I write? Where's that? In the closet. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? I wrote Untamed (laughs) in a freaking closet because, Joshua, I can't sit. I'm in the office now, and it's just too big, and there's too many distractions, 
and I couldn't do it. And one day I realized, oh, I got to get back in the closet. And it's funny you say that. I, I got so used to writing at uh, all of our books uh, at my kitchen table. I have a desk now that, um, and I'll, I'll work from there occasionally, but I still find myself writing at the kitchen table because mm-hmm. that was the, the habit I, esta- I established many years ago. It's the place that I feel the most creative at. And, and you know, you're right. Any of these tools, whether it's an office, I mean, that can augment our experience ultimately, but it's not the thing that does the writing for us. You can have the same exact pencil as Stephen King. It doesn't mean you're going to start <laughs> writing horror novels tomorrow. That's right. That's right. It's never the thing. It's never the next thing. It's never the different thing. Um, no, this is the the lesson I've just. And and by the way, I still have to learn it every day, Joshua. Like I still can convince myself. I have about fifty six thousand bottles of potions in my bathroom, and I can. <laughs> I will still promise you, Joshua, that tomorrow I'll see something and be like, "This is it, though. This." is the bottle of lotion that will change my face and therefore change my life. Like the amount <laughs> that I get suckered into this stuff um, really is amazing to me. Marketing is powerful, man, but you're right. We all just want belonging. We want belonging and we want acceptance and we want love and we think the Rolex or the potion's going to get it for us and it just doesn't. I think that's a beautiful place to end it. Glenn, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you and all of your work. You're making the world a better place. I really do appreciate it. All right. The next quality conversation that we had was with our friend Dave Ramsey. So Dave, you probably know him as the guy who's been given financial advice for several decades now. Ryan and I really subscribe to his way of thinking, especially with respect to debt. We don't believe in having any debt in our personal lives. Also in our business life, we don't believe in having any debt. And so I had this quick conversation with him over the phone. I hope you enjoy it. How many years have you been telling people they need a budget and now they're maybe maybe starting to figure out within the last month or so? <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> about about 30, I think. Yeah. Oh, our our brand has been validated and so has yours, right? Oh my gosh, you know, so many people are start, starting to ask like what is essential in my life and it's like, well, I've been trying to tell you for the last 12 years. Yeah, for uh, real. But, you know, maybe sometimes it takes a, a sort of car crash of sorts, either literally or, or figuratively, before we start to question everything. And now I think people are finally starting to question. I've had so many people in our own audience ask us about this pandemic, and now they're starting to, to consider budgeting for the first time, as though, uh, as though they shouldn't have been before. Would you say that your advice differs now more than, uh, differs now than, than from what it was two months ago? You know, that's the wonderful thing about what we've done for the same thing for 30 years. It's stuff that works when times are good and when times are bad. Our advice is um, essentially exactly the same. Uh, We have always said, you know, giving you the baby steps to work and be on a written plan and stay out of debt and save money for emergencies. We've always said that. Now, in the midst of this, you wouldn't work our baby steps plan if you are in the middle of a crisis. But if you had called me two years ago and you're in the middle of a crisis, 
I'm not telling you to work baby steps plan and we're going to get out of the crisis first. Right. Right. And so you, you, you stop paying extra on your debt. You stop paying, uh, setting money aside for retirement, for goodness sakes, if you're worried about eating. And so you stop everything and pile up cash and get through the hurricane. And then you go back after the storm blows by and, and, and start your, you know, your more normalized financial planning process again. You know, a lot of people that we've talked to about the Every Dollar app is it. They've they found immense value in that. I mean, it's it's not appreciably different from having your own envelope system. You're just doing it online. You're syncing it with, with your bank, and 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 now people are are beginning to realize like if I actually question the money that that I'm bringing in, the money that's going out, it's going to be able to go a lot farther. Well, when better than in the middle of, of a literal pandemic that we want to be able to use our resources deliberately, right? Oh, exactly. I mean, what we've done here at Ramsey, I've got a thousand team members here. And from a leadership perspective in business, what we did immediately was in order to preserve those jobs and pay those people, the first thing we did was what? Conserve cash. And so we cut out any uh, any miscellaneous spending or delayed it and said, we're not doing that project this month. We're not doing that this month. We're not doing that this month. We're going to stop everything because it's more, what's the most important thing inside this building? Well, right now it would be preserve the jobs, right? And keep everybody in, keep, keep everybody without having to lay off or furlough or anything. Now, when you're at home and you're laying it out, what are we going to do? We're going to lay out a written game plan. And we're going to preserve cash. Uh, so why? Because we got to eat, buy food first, and then we're going to keep the lights on and the water first, second, and then we're going to pay the, the rent third. And uh, we're going to worry about kids college later, for goodness sake. So we're going to preserve and conserve cash. And nobody accidentally does that. You do that with a written plan and the written plan just kind of looks at you and says, duh, here's what you should do. You know, Ryan and I often try to differentiate between essential items, non-essential items, and junk items. Essential items are, are the things that you're talking about. We need to be able to pay rent or our mortgage. We need, need to be able to have a, a, a roof over our heads. We, we need to be able to feed our kids. We need to have the electricity on. And, and then, of course, we you know, basic clothing, et cetera. We, we all have essential needs. And then there are non-essential needs that are – these are things that add value to our lives. And I think it's incredibly important to have those things when we can afford them. I think the problem is most of us mistake the essential and non-essential things, the things that add value to our lives, with the junk in our lives. We've been marketed to to think that that brand new Lexus that costs ninety thousand dollars is going to bring me everlasting happiness, and and maybe in a time like this, it's a time to not just say, well, what is essential to me and and what adds value to my life, but what kind of junk have I been spending this money on? Why am, why am I broke at this point? And it's because a lot of the things I thought were essential actually aren't. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, it, it is one of the good byproducts of going through this much societal stress, this much a strain at home is, you, you know, if it gets really ugly outside, you really start to, human beings are pretty smart about what's essential and mm. what's not and, and what's superfluous or junk. And, uh, but when everything's going really good, it's, it's more confusing. It's more blurry to some people. And, right. and they say things like I needed a new car. <laughs> no, you wanted a new car. You didn't need a new car. There's nothing wrong with getting a new car if you want to, and you've got the money, but it was not a need. And you really don't get to say that if you call the Dave Ramsey show, I'll call your butt out and go, it's not a need. 
Yeah, I don't mind you spending money on once. I spend money on once. I got some nice stuff, but I none of it is a need. I mean, really, there's food, there's shelter, there's utilities, and basic transportation, and some basic clothing, and that's your need. And most people got that covered, even if a, if they're furloughed. I mean, they really do because it it doesn't take a lot to cover that. And you can go work a part-time job delivering pizzas right now if if you got laid off, and you can cover the real needs. It's not to say it's how we want to live our life forever, but, you know, it it just helps you get real centered on what's real. What do you think this is going to do to the housing market? Is this going to be good news for some folks? I don't think it's going to affect it substantially. except in areas where we're, where folks are out of work for an extended period of time. Uh, I mean, if, if there's some hot spots around that may not go back to work for quite a while, and if they don't go, if that economy, that micro economy doesn't go back to work, it's going to affect that housing market. But overall, if uh, your area, you're listening to this right now, and your area is back to work in a few weeks, um, uh, and, and, you know, it, there's who knows whether that's true or not. I don't know. I don't know what these characters are going to do, but the faster we get back to work, the less it'll affect it, obviously. But uh, my supposition is, is that most of America will be back to work quickly enough that it will slow the housing market, but it will not tank the prices. You know, one of the most controversial things I will often tell people is there's no such thing as good debt. And I know you echo that sentiment quite a bit, or maybe that's me echoing you. But we're, we're at a time right now where people might be either encouraged or at least they feel that it's necessary to to take on debt. But can we can we talk about why that might not be a good idea, even even in the time of a crisis? Well, I mean, especially in the time of a crisis, you look up and see. Uh, I mean, the, the people that don't have any debt right now and have an emergency fund of three to six months of expenses have a completely different life situation than the people who are deeply in debt and don't have any money. Yeah. And, and they were the ones telling us all along that debt was okay. Debt was okay. Debt was okay. Uh, the problem is it's a destabilizer. It adds risk to your life and to your business. Uh, and the more of it you have, the more destabilized you are. And here we are in a situation where the wind starts blowing and the big bad wolf is huffing and puffing. And sadly, we're watching people with, you know, the ones that are in the straw house and the stick house is blown over. And those that are in the brick house with no debt and an emergency fund are sitting pretty. And so I would want to be that little pig that's in the brick house and uh, not be running to the very thing that caused the problem for me in the first place. It's like, hey, let's grab a hold of some concrete blocks. We're drowning. <laughs> You know, I think the the only reason, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons that I'm I'm feeling calm throughout this time of anxiety is because I have a car, but I don't have a car payment. I have a house, but I don't have a house payment. I I, I have essential payments like my utilities and and food, but I don't have any any debt. And I have a substantial emergency fund that I built up over the last decade or so. And of course, all of my, my retirement accounts are are funded. But it wasn't always that way with me. When I was back in the corporate world making really, really good money, which there's nothing wrong with that. I spent even better money. And so ostensibly I looked like I had money, but man, I, I was absolutely broke and I was working really hard 
to buy things and, and to maintain a lifestyle that wasn't bringing me joy or happiness or contentment. And and I guess what I'm looking for, for from you here is what is the message that you have of hope once we get out of this for people? Because I know you and your team over there at Ramsey Solutions, you, you've been you, you've been working hard to to make sure people understand that there is hope on the other side of of this crisis. Well, there is. I'm old and I've seen, you know, 9-11 happen and the planes hit the towers. I, I watched Y2K happen before that. And both of these things were going to ruin our life as we knew it forever. Then 2008, 2007 hit and other miscellaneous calamities have come and gone. And um, this too shall pass. It's a really tough time right now for a lot of folks. And I understand that. And I'm certainly not shaming anybody, not making fun of anybody for not being ready. But I went through a really tough time in the eighties when I lost everything in my twenties because I was stupid and I had borrowed too much money and there was a little SNL crisis and it caused the banking world to change. And I lost everything I owned and I went bankrupt and had to start completely over with a brand new baby, a toddler and a marriage hanging on by a thread. So I know when, when, you know, when, when a storm comes and you've been stupid and it knocks everything over, I know how that feels. Uh, cause I got a PhD in DUMB. I know exactly what it looks like. So I'm not shaming anybody, but this is wake up call for a lot of people. Uh, like you said earlier that, you know, in America, we have the best looking, uh, most well-funded broke people on the planet. You know, they're wearing stuff and carrying stuff and driving stuff and living in stuff that they can't afford. And they're, they're, and, and they're like a rat in a wheel. It just run, 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 get nowhere. There's no sense of peace. There's no sense of contentment. There's no sense of spiritual margin or emotional margin in their lives. It's just, everything is on a razor's edge. And then when the wind blows, you're screwed mm. and, and, and it blows all this stuff over and it, and then you just go, oh crud stuff is just stuff. And you know, he, with the most toys when he dies is dead, you know, and just in the graveyard, you, you, you just, you never saw a rider truck fall in a hearse. You ain't taking it with you, baby. You know? And so it, it's just, you start to, you know, when the wind blows like this, it helps you to get a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more spiritual on how you're looking at your life. And that's a good thing because uh, that's what happened with you, Joshua, when you went through that years ago and the whole minimalist movement was started. And then you've guided other people to do that voluntarily. And then I went broke and before that, you know, years ago. And obviously then I've guided people to stay out of debt because of that. And I've stayed out of debt and, to, and to have money saved. And when you got a pile of money and you don't have any debt, uh, and, and this stuff happens again, it changes everything when the wind blows. I think we go broke monetarily, but, but also that, that is almost this, this physical manifestation of, of this emotional brokenness and a spiritual brokenness. And they're all, mm -hmm. they're all sort of tied together. They're not standing in separate corners of the room. And I think mm -hmm. what we, what, what we learn is when we integrate our lives, we start aligning our values with our actions and vice versa, that, then that life is a much more meaningful life. Exactly. And what does happen when you go through those uh, metamorphosis times, those times of transformation, is you have a series of never again moments. Mm. Never again am I going to be owned by stuff and clutter, you said. Mm -hmm. I said, never again is a bank going to call my house and 
question my character. If a bank calls my house, Joshua, it's a wrong number. You know, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a misdial. You know, it's, never again do I want to talk to these people. Never again am I going to look at my wife and see that level of fear in her eyes uh, because we can't keep food on the table or lights and water turned on. And I got them turned off, man. And I babies. I was that guy. Never again do I want to be that guy. And so some folks in the midst of this storm, it's a horrible thing you're going through and I love you and I'm sorry. And I'll walk with you and I'll help you, but make this for goodness sakes, make this your never again moment. I love it. I think it's a great place to end it, Dave. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you guys. All right. Today's final guest is a previous podcast guest, sort of. Derek Sivers, one of the most influential people in my life. Sivers.org is his website. He has a few books out right now, uh, new books, including uh, How to Live, which is his newest book. But you can find links to all of his books on his website, Sivers.org. Just one of my favorite writers alive today. We had him on the podcast sort of in the past. We did a live event with him in 2017 in New Zealand. He was living in New Zealand at the time. And it was the first, I think, interview he did in something like three or four years. Does that sound right, Sean? Something like that. Yeah, and so we got him to come out and do this live event with us. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, The episode was just called Sivers. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to hear a longer-form conversation with him. But here's a short conversation I had with him. We covered a bunch of topics over a short span of time. Enjoy. Derek, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me all the way across the world. Oh my gosh. Last time we were together was in New Zealand. And I guess that was what, uh, three, three and a half years ago, something like that. Yeah. And uh, we both left and now I'm back. So I'm here in Wellington, New Zealand. But yeah, last time I saw you was in Auckland at a horse racing course. With your Honestly, I, I, I've done several hundred tour stops, and that might have been the strangest venue. <laughs> <laughs> Even the locals thought so. Yeah, that was awesome. It was very unique. Uh, there were escalators, and uh, yeah, I was just waiting for a horse to bust through a door at any moment. Yeah. Anyway, I figure we could start by talking about beliefs. I mean, one of the things that I admire you for is when I look at you compared to your average person. You seem to be less influenced by mimetic or, or societal beliefs, and you sort of have your own personal beliefs. How do you think you developed this skill, or, or why do you think that is? I think it's because I was, I think it's two things. For one, I was just a long-haired musician that wanted to be uh, a rock star. And so I was surrounded by people that were trying to Uh, get into a good college, and all of that was moot to me. They were trying to uh, get a good job somewhere, and that was moot to me. They were looking into like how to make lots of money and get insurance and healthcare, and all of that was moot to me. So for most of it, I just felt like I, the things that most of the world wanted just didn't seem to apply to me anyway. Anyway, I was just pursuing a different thing. You know, I was I was the ringleader MC of a circus for ten years, from the age of eighteen to twenty eight. I was in a circus, and so I guess that could be a bit of a um, alienating thing, where I just uh, yeah, most people couldn't relate to the life of a circus performer full time. You know, um, 
I quit my last job in 1992. Yeah, I've been a full-time just musician and whatever guy since 1992. So I think that's most of it. But even going back further, um, if you lay me on the shrink couch, um, when I was five years old, we moved from uh, Chicago to, or sorry, we moved from California to England. And uh, I was the American kid at an English school and everybody uh, was really weird to me and seemed to have different values from me and think that different things were important. So I was just like, yeah, I'm not one of you people. And then we moved to Chicago and everybody called me the English kid because I had picked up the accent. <laughs> and so once again, I was just like, I'm not like you people. I, you know, I just felt that like ever since I was like five years old, it just felt like whatever situation I'm in, it just feels like the rules don't apply to me. I'm just doing something else. So, um, and, yeah. and I find your I find your reaction to that fascinating because a lot of people uh, feel that way. I'm not like you people, but I might as well assimilate then. And and yours was sort of the opposite of that, where it's uh, it's almost pushing those those societal or mimetic beliefs away. And, and making sure that what you're doing is aligned with your own, we could call it values, we can call it beliefs, but with what you want to do. Yeah, and maybe it's flaunting it for attention? No, I don't want attention. Maybe I did long ago. No, I don't know. What was that thing? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it did just feel more like you guys are doing a different thing here. You're, you're, you're pursuing something that I'm not pursuing so therefore, all of these norms and rules, which seem to be about fitting in and being liked and all that stuff, I wasn't pursuing those in the first place. So um, yeah, I never wanted to fit in. I wanted to stand out. I never wanted to be normal. I wanted to be different. And yeah. I think that you have mastered the art of letting go in many ways. For folks that are familiar with your story, it's uh, whether it's stuff or, or places or attachments, you're really good at moving on. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, how do you determine when it's time to let go of a, of a person, place, or thing so Ooh. that you can move on? Ooh, wow. That's a great question. <laughs> I think it's personal development, right? It's, it's growth when you feel that you've learned most of what there is to learn here, then it's time to move on. I love the metaphor that when you're playing a game, like a board game or something like that, video game, board game, whatever it may be, when you win the game, it's time to stop playing. And I think of that a lot too. It's like if, if you mm. set out to do something and you've done it, like say, say you set out to make money, and you did it. You made money. Well, great. Now you can stop playing that game. It's time to play yeah. a different game. But I think what a lot of people do is they they get into a game to go make money, for example, and then they achieve it, and then they keep playing that game more and more and more to try to just make some work. Uh, whereas I find it much more interesting in the name of growth to go learn a different game. Let's stop playing the money game. Let's play a different game. And sometimes that game just amplifies it instead of the Mercedes Benz, it's the Maserati or, or whatever the, <laughs> right. the, the game right. is. Uh, you obviously strike me as a minimalist. You certainly are in many respects. Uh, let me ask you this. How, how has your relationship to material possessions changed over the years? Um, 
So I'm curious if you've found this with all the people you've talked to on this subject for the last few years, if, if there's a common thread. I think most of us had to go through it to get to the other side, right? Like when yes. I was a self-promoting musician, I lived in a house full of stuff. I had a recording studio. And this is also back in the days when uh, to promote your stuff was more of a physical thing. I had a thousand CDs in boxes that I, and a thousand padded mailers. And I used to have eight by 10 glossy photos, which I would include in my press kit with CDs and put into a padded mailer. So my house was filled with promotional stuff and it was filled with recording studio stuff. And I had two cats and I, you know, I just I had a house full of stuff, but then I moved house like three times in four years. And each time I'd pack all that stuff into a U-Haul Mm -hmm. drive it somewhere and then unpack all that stuff. And it wasn't until uh, my business CD Baby was totally taking off, was consuming every waking hour, that I moved into a place uh, that was actually my grandma's furnished apartment. My grandma had a little like guest apartment next to her house that she let me stay in temporarily. And it was just already furnished. So this time, instead of unpacking all my stuff, I just put it all into storage temporarily while I stayed at grandma's furnished apartment. And then mm. five years went by and I was still at the furnished temporary apartment and all my stuff was still in storage after five years. And so I was like, you know, I guess if I haven't needed it in five years, I'm going to need it never. So right. I had 50 employees at the time and I just told my employees like, all right, here's the, the key to my storage space. Everybody just go grab whatever you want. Um, one thing each, please. And you know, somebody grabbed my bass. Somebody else took my piano. Somebody else took my mixing deck. Somebody else took my speakers. And and pretty soon I had nothing left but my old paper diaries, like my notebook diaries I'd been carrying around since I was 13 or something. And I looked at all these notebooks. I was like, eh, really? Am I going to like look at these things when I'm 50? Nah, chuck it. So I just threw them in the bin and that was it. I was left with nothing but a suitcase of clothes. And um, yeah, but you know what I was thinking? I was thinking about That's you a, a couple of days ago because I realized that it's my minimalism thing is not just physical. Um, no. Dude, I legally removed my middle name because I wasn't using it. And <laughs> that is, that's a first for me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Expand on this. I, I hate having things I'm not using. And I just realized, like, I've, I never use my middle name. In fact, it wasn't even on my passport. Because just years ago, when they asked my name, I just said Derek Sivers and left out my middle name, which I had never used since birth. And um, then when I moved to Singapore, and I became a legal resident, they needed to see my birth certificate. So suddenly, like my Singapore bank account was using my middle name. And when I was trying to transfer money from my regular bank account without my middle name into my bank account with my middle name. There were delays because they said the names didn't match. And it's like, you know, I don't use this middle name. I'm getting rid of it. So yeah, it was like 30 bucks and had to file a form to legally remove my middle name. But there are a whole bunch of examples of this. Like if there's a there was a toaster in my house that I wasn't using and I hadn't used it in a couple months. So I gave it to a friend. It's like, just anything I'm not using, 
I just don't want to have it, uh, even if it's non-physical. Um, right, so, but at the same yeah. time, it doesn't seem to me that you deprive yourself either. And I think that's a, an important distinction for people to understand is that you're not necessarily opposed to things that are useful to you, but if something is not useful, it seems as though it, it gets in the way and you want it out of your life. You want to let go. Yeah, but even things that could be useful... Oh, yeah. I, it has to pass a really high bar. I really don't like letting anything into my life because maybe I take things more seriously than I used to now. So it, it feels like anything I'm letting into my life, like it's like, a, like agreeing to adopt a puppy. Yeah, I treat almost everything mm. like a puppy. <laughs> there we go. Good rule of thumb. Treat everything like a puppy. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I, I like this. Uh, Ryan and I call it the, the just-in-case rule. You know, there's so many things that we hold on to just in case we might need it in some non-existent right. hypothetical future. And of course, we never end up using those things. And so giving ourselves permission to let go is really freeing up space for the things or the puppies that may actually add value to our lives. <laughs> uh, speaking of letting go, um, I, I think we have to let go before we can move on. And, and You've moved on a lot. You've lived all over the globe. Uh, you were just in Oxford recently. Now you're mm -hmm. back in New Zealand. I'd love to hear about why that move back. But then I'd also like to hear about your decision-making process. How do you decide when it's time to move to a new place? Ooh. Um, it's a, that's a tricky, nuanced answer that I can't give fully because I have a kid with uh, a mother that I we have to compromise, even though we want very different things out of life. We have a kid together that we're very 50-50 with. So, um, so decisions on where to live have to be made together. Like if it were yeah. just up to me alone, I might be in Myanmar right now and mm. moving every three months because uh, that would be fun. Uh, but she doesn't want that. So therefore we can't do that. We have to find the compromise, you know? So um, that's my real answer with moving. But I think kind of like your first question about letting go, I think that about location too, that a place has something to teach you and a place offers you uh, a growth opportunity. And when you feel that you've learned most of what that place has to offer, and I, I draw the line at most of, because of course there's always every day more that you could learn from a place. But when you feel like you've gotten most of what this place has to offer, then I feel that it's actually the growth choice to move on. Um, I think a lot of my inf a lot of my thoughts around this is influenced by Abraham Maslow, the. Uh, psychologist from a hundred something years ago. I think he was a contemporary of Freud's, but while Freud was studying sick people, Abraham Maslow went out to study the healthiest people in the world and find out mm. what makes them tick. And he developed his theory of self-actualization with this pyramid showing your basic needs like food and shelter um, at the bottom of the pyramid, your medium needs like feeling heard and appreciated and doing good work that you're proud of. And at the very tippy top of the pyramid uh, was the thing he called self-actualization, which was kind of this feeling that you're, um, you're doing your unique contribution to the world. Uh, and his advice 
after all these studies to people is he had this great uh, motto that I've uh, been driven by ever since where he said every day or he said a hundred times a day you're presented with the choice between safety and growth. He might have mm. said safety and risk. Uh, and then he said, make the growth choice a hundred times a day. Mm. And so I read that as a teenager and really took it to heart. And I think that's what I've been doing ever since is always looking at the day-to-day -day little choices between safety and growth and choosing the growth choice. Do you find that returning to a place opens up uh, a different worldview or, or do you see it through a different lens? You know, you've returned now to, to New Zealand. I assume there's other places you've returned to in the past, Singapore perhaps. But um, do, do you find you come back after being away uh, for a while with a, a new point of view? Hmm. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess like watching a movie. A second time, mm, years yeah. later, you do see it through new eyes, but come on, let's admit it. For the most part, you've seen that movie. Like, yes, you might sure. get a, a little more out of it, but you, you, it would be a better growth choice to just watch a new movie, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess I feel that about places, too. I'd rather just go for a new place that I'd never been to instead of back to the same place again. But, you know, we all... Yeah, sorry uh, to interrupt we, so we it's just not only as people do we have different values you know some people are just way more into family for example or way more into uh hedonism that they may just mm. kind of follow the sun follow the weather go where the party is uh, so we sure. all have different values but i think what 2020 showed a lot of us is that our values can change based on the situation you know so in 2019 your top value might have been travel. You would have said, travel's the most important thing to me. And then suddenly 2020 happens and you go, huh, oh, um, maybe not dying is my most important value now. <laughs> I think I've just changed my values based on the situation. You know, whether we, having a kid can change your values. Uh, sure. Getting fired from a job can change your values. Uh, winning the lottery changes your values. You know, we have to admit that, our values, uh, we have some values that are there just by nature, some that are there because we just grew up being told that things are, these things are important. And sometimes our values are very situational. And as soon as our yeah. situation changes, our values change. Yeah, I like to think that we have uh, different types of values, like foundational values are, are, are things that are probably not going to change for us. And by the way, I think they're pretty similar for most of us, whether it's health or relationships and we, we we can you know define those differently and i think they're they're different for each person but then you have these sort of surface values yeah like travel for example that might be a value for you but for me it, it, it may be less of a value and then i think many of us have the imaginary values the sort of societal values the things that have been thrust upon us and we think they're important but they may actually be getting in the way of us living the life that that we want to live. I appreciate your honesty around the, the uh, question around moving back to a place. Uh, <laughs> well, I feel weird sometimes when people say like, Hey, well, and why'd you move to New Zealand? I'm like, it's complicated, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah and, and by the way, that's involved. The, right. Right. And, and sometimes that's the only honest answer is it's complicated, right? There, yeah. I, I don't have the, the sexy answer for you. Um, how uh, to pivot a bit. What, what, you're on social media. You're on Twitter. Wait, actually, before we pivot yeah. to this stuff, uh, I've 
just recently, about a month ago, met somebody uh, that we would just kind of just random, like stranger uh, kind of thing. And we were comparing notes and suddenly we're like shocked at how many things we have in common, like really weird esoteric things. Like, you know, even when you said in this interview, you say, you know, you seem to move on more than most people or whatever. So I met somebody else that also had these really weird approach to life things in common, also very nomadic, very like ever changing. And it wasn't till a few days of conversation that I found out that he also um, is not into his family, like his parents. Like I also feel like I've always felt very disconnected from my parents. Like even as a little kid, I was just never into family bonds. Wow. And when we found out that he was the same way, we're like, whoa, I wonder if this is a common thread. Like, if you don't feel very connected with your family, then dot, 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 all these other traits maybe fall into place. Like being nomadic, constantly looking for change instead of security. Like maybe there's some kind of, um, because we didn't have warm and fuzzy, positive feelings around security and the family home front, maybe that leads to other things. So it's interesting, like, you know, I'm 51 now. So even at the age of 51, still finding out maybe why I'm this way, you know, I don't question it that much. So every now and then it's weird to get a new insight into why we are the way we are. Yeah. And it's interesting going back, sort of tracing the dominoes back to the the first one that fell. And, uh, you know, it, it's almost, it seems to me difficult to be able to even talk about something like that. Uh, for a lot of people, because there is a societal expectation, it, it, it almost seems callous. But I, I think it's, I think it's the opposite. Personally, I, I think to be able to have honest, honest conversations about things like that is actually a compassionate way to to talk about you know, the people who raised us or the people uh, that, that that were around, you know, twenty four mm. hours a day for a long period of time. Yeah, I do want to pivot over to, to yes. social media because okay. I, uh, this, uh, I don't know, there's been a whole lot of talk. There's a new documentary out there now with, uh, it's called the social dilemma. And a lot of people are, are finally waking up to the idea that, Hey, maybe these things aren't as nebulous as, as we initially thought. I mean, they are tools, but there are also thousands of well-paid engineers who are working very hard to aggregate your eyeballs onto these tools. And, uh, I want to. I just wanted to figure out how your views about social media have changed over the last decade or so. Um, they haven't because I've never been into it. I've never used it. I've never even found it at all appealing. Uh, mm. But I just recently had a little insight into why uh, some others might. You know, you and I are both a little bit famous already. And so we already have a percentage of our life that is public. Um, not like, right. you know, paparazzi at the door public, but, you know, just the things like this interview that we're putting out into the world that a bunch of strangers are going to hear. And most people don't have that at all. Um, yeah. And so their outlet to share things in the public is just through social media, through posting things on their platform of choice. And somebody asked me recently uh, if having a kid makes you 
give up your public aspirations, give up your public uh, life. And I was like, no, I said, I, I, I need a balance. Um, I think a life that was 100% private, doing nothing in the public or for the public would be really sad for me. But on the other hand, a life that was 100% public with no private life, that would also be really mm. sad to me. Yeah. So I think I always need the blend. I Although you strike my... me, you strike me as a more more private person. Um, although you you certainly have this this public facing piece of you, whether it's your your podcast or or your books or or your website, you know, with the articles that you write, there is a public facing Derek Sivers, Derek no middle name Sivers, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet you, I there is not a piece of you, and I admire this about you that. It doesn't seem to me that you attention is not the point of doing what you do. No, but if that's what I mean about the zero percent, right? Like, if I had none, then maybe I would be doing things to seek attention. Mm. You know, like I've already got enough attention for my balance, so I'm not seeking anymore. I don't really post anything on social media. Why would I? What, what, what would be the point? More attention? I don't want more attention. Ah, right. but it's a because I already have some. So then I realized like, oh, okay, when I see just random, you know, girl from Ohio or um, Kazakhstan or Peru or whatever is posting a, a picture of herself on Instagram today, I think, why would she do that? Then I got, ah, because this is, She's reaching for her own balance that makes her happy of doing some things publicly. And yes, she is seeking more attention than she has right now because she doesn't have enough. And at some point, she might reach the balance where that's enough attention for her. And then, of course, you right. know, we see famous narcissists that no amount is enough for them. They just want it all and there's no amount that could ever be enough. Um, but we all just find our own balance. So yeah, I, I suddenly had more compassion for the people that are posting selfies online that I never really understood that before I thought about this uh, public private balance. And, and you found your enough. And I think that's the key here is determining what that enough is, being honest with yourself about that. In fact, I think most of us never ask what is enough, right? We're, we're always either accumulating more, 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 or even, even when we're letting go, it's like, well, how much is enough letting go? Because it, it, do I need to become an ascetic? Um, mm, do, right. do I need to become a Spartan in some way? Or um, is there enough letting go? Or is there enough accumulation? And, and what does that mean? I, I think quite often we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. It's just, it's, there's some hypothetical happiness that's just around the bin that of course, we, we don't arrive at if we don't determine what is enough. Although it's not bad to seek it. I mean, if you use the physical metaphor of you're walking into a dark room, you need to kind of stick your hands out and feel where the end is, <laughs> where are the boundaries. You need to hit the boundaries before you know uh, where you are. So like we said earlier about uh, having too much stuff, most of us will have to go through the process, no matter how much they may listen to to you and what you've put out into the world, they'll have to hit their limit themselves of having too much stuff and feeling the pain from that right. before they finally said, okay, now I know where my enough is. And, you know, lucky me that I 
won the lottery in a way of selling my company at the right time where I was able to feel um, that enough with money too and just feel like, okay, no, this is enough for me. Like I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm not pursuing money anymore because I, now I know I've reached the amount that that was enough. But if I hadn't hit that, I'd still be pursuing it. Right. Yeah. I, I uh, with the minimalists, we, we don't do, we're not allergic to money. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, we, we uh, try not to let it be the primary driver. It's allowed to be in the vehicle, but not behind the wheel, so, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and we, all, we often begin our, our podcast with, uh, with this little phrase, uh, this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody because advertisements suck. And um, I, I, I've heard you speak on this in the past, and my guess is that probably resonates with, to, with you oh, yeah. to, to some extent because a I lot. don't want to... I hate listening. I start hate starting a podcast and hearing eight minutes of ads or hearing it interrupted by ads, um, and, and I think ads uh, are, are dangerous to a certain extent. But I also think there may be times where they're potentially beneficial. Can you speak about both sides of that or either side of that? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, okay, so Tim Ferriss is a friend of mine. I've known him since. Um, 2007 or so and he's gotten a lot more famous since then and um so it's been funny to like as his podcast especially took off and i think that's been his despite the success of his books i think his podcast has the biggest audience of anything he's ever done so yeah he's got like eight minutes of ads up front and you know, i was giving him hell for this like dude come on it's you know i know you i know you don't need the money why are you doing this what's with the eight minutes of ads and he just said, you know, I, I wish, um, I wish this weren't true, but he said, those ads bring in so much money. And he said, I've given them to, I give the money to this Cambodian school project. That's like created so many schools and put so many kids through school. So when I make this decision of like, should I get rid of all the ads? I think, yeah, I could get rid of the ads. And then 4,000 kids in Cambodia won't be going to school anymore. So he said, mm. you know, it's not ideal, but it's net positive. Those aren't his exact words, but that's, that was kind of like the, the gist of the decision um, is, yeah. Um, I recently put out my first book in nine years, my first new book in nine years, and I sold it only through my own website. And I thought I was going to sell maybe $30,000, maybe $40,000 worth of books. And in the first month, it sold over a quarter million dollars, like in the first three weeks. And mm. I'll admit, I was elated. I was walking on air. I was like, whoa, a quarter million bucks in a few weeks from like for my book. And I think it just felt really sweet because that was the first time I had charged money for anything in a long time. And right. like so many people opened up their wallets and bought that book directly from me. It was like, it was super touching. It was really, mm. really like soul nourishing, sweet. It felt a hundred percent amazing. I was so happy. And then a few weeks went by and I thought, okay, well, uh, what am I going to do with the money? Like, <laughs> I don't, I guess I'll put it in a Vanguard account or something, put it in index funds. Yeah, I guess that's what I should do. I guess I should stick that money into index funds because, you know, there's nothing I want to buy. So that's the proper thing to do with extra money. And 
I thought, God, that's just, there's something kind of sad about it. Like I was really excited to earn this money, but I was not excited to keep it. And it was actually a conversation with a friend, a screenwriter, a Lithuanian screenwriter friend of mine who lives in <laughs> Germany that I said, hey, like, what do you do to celebrate? Like, I never celebrate. Like, that's just a thing mm. I've never done. And she, she's the one that said, um, she goes, well, someday when I sell my first uh, TV screenplay, she said, there's a forest in Lithuania that I want to buy to help protect that forest from development. I was like, ooh. And she goes, yeah, mm. that, that to me would be celebrating my first wow. TV screenplay. I was like, oh, charity as celebration. That's brilliant. I'm like, whoa. And then, of course, it just like, I couldn't unthink that idea. And within an hour, I was like, oh, I know what I need to do with that quarter million dollars. And so I went to givewell.org, which uh, I had been aware of for years. They're just these data nerds that were interested in what is the most rationally effective form of charitable giving, meaning yeah. the how much money will save the most lives, um, best bang per buck of per lives saved. And then they crunch the data and they find out of all the charities in the world, which ones are saving the most lives per, per dollar. And of those, which ones would save even more lives if they had more money, like they are only money constrained. Therefore, if you have some money to give, all, all things being equal, this is the most rational choices to give to these charities. And they basically list their top three. And so mm -hmm. I picked the top one, which was the Against Malaria Foundation. And right. I entered an amount into the calculator, which said that if I donate uh, $250,000 to the Against Malaria Foundation, that it saves, I think it was like 139 lives. My I was God. like, well, there well, we go. <laughs> all yeah. right. No contest. So I immediately donated it to the Against Malaria Foundation, saved 139 lives. 139 people won't die because I charged 15 bucks for my book. And yeah. that felt really good because I was almost about to give it away. So coming back full circle to having advertisements, I hate ads. I do everything on my computer to block ads at every step. So I never see ads online. And, uh, I'm fully against ads, but then, oh no, I'll admit when Tim Ferriss explained his point of view on it, I thought, all right, I get it. That's an interesting nuance. Yeah, for sure. By the way, I should probably mention the the book you're talking about is Your Music and People. Um, also, Hell Yeah or No, those yeah, are your, your two books, new books. Yeah. Okay, both books. Um, by the way, I, your books are probably the only books I buy by the case and just hand them out to people. <laughs> Thank you. That's what, that's a big part of why I went self-published. You know, I had a, my last book was on Penguin Portfolio and the, my main contact there is a real sweetheart who's a fan has always told me like, Hey, whatever you do next, we want it. It's a instant yes to your next book in advance. And I just decided to go self-published because I like to be able to, uh, give someone like you a, a crate of books wholesale instead of you needing to go buy a hundred from Amazon and give Jeff Bezos all that money. Um, I'd rather just sell it wholesale. So um, yeah, I even got to play with pricing. Like I decided to make the paper book just $4, which is about, it's like, it costs about like $3 something to print each book. So I just sell the paper books for four bucks because I don't need to profit off of the paper you know wow. um, so it's kind of fun to like when you're self-publishing you get to make your own rules for pricing and things like that too 
That's right. Well, that's rather considerate of you, which is uh, just really a segue for my last question for you here. You, you've got this um, point of view, this idea of something that is meta inconsiderate. Now, so maybe you could expand on that, but by, well, you can maybe talk about what it is, but then also, can you give three examples of something that is perceived by our society to be, quote, considerate, but it may actually be meta inconsiderate? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the big idea is that there are things that we we think of as being considerate, and maybe on a base level it is, but in the bigger picture, it's maybe doing more harm than good. So, um, say giving. <laughs> let's first we'll start with the the uh, theme that comes up here a lot, which is stuff and gifts. So giving someone a gift saying, oh, well, it's their birthday. Let me go down to the store and buy my friend a thing because it's their birthday. Um, yeah, on one level, on a shallow level, that's considerate. But I would think that's kind of meta inconsiderate because now you're giving your friend a, a thing that they have to take care of or dispose of and then feel the need to reciprocate and do that in the future because that you did it for them and it just kind of sets a bad precedent so that's to me like a shallow considerate but meta inconsiderate um mm. in interpersonal relations i think of it often in terms of uh romantic things when you meet somebody that you're head over heels for and you drown them in compliments you may think you're being considerate by telling somebody all these sweet things. But in a way, you're being kind of meta-inconsiderate because um, people like the, the joy of the chase. They want to aspire to be with somebody. They want to feel that, they're, uh, that they need to win your heart, not that uh, the second they said hello, they already had your heart. That's a little sad. <laughs> so you've denied them the joy of of chasing you if you uh, are just all over somebody that you you like. Um, so that's kind of where I first started noticing this idea. It's a friend of mine mm. uh, in Singapore uh, was just head over heels for another friend of mine. And it was just like gushing all over her and just beating her over the head with his love. <laughs> I was like, dude, I know you think you're being considerate, but you're 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 yeah. being rude. You're being uh -huh. over the top, meta inconsiderate. Um, so uh, it would be more meta considerate to let her come to her own conclusion and um, not put her up on a pedestal. Um, as far as a third, um, I might even say with social media stuff, um, like the amount that you put out into the world. Um, People may say they want more, more, more from you, but actually they like wanting more. Yes. Wanting is a nice feeling. Um, yeah. So maybe it's better to just uh, sometimes let them want a little more and then give them more. I, I think of a, um, an ex of mine like 20 years ago, my uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, she, she would do this little thing about like, what are you getting for my birthday? Tell me, tell me, tell me. I said, no, -uh, I'm not telling you. She goes, oh, please, please, please tell me what you're getting me for my birthday. I said, no, 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 I'm not telling you. And she said, oh, please, 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 please tell me. I said, okay, you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. I said, all right, a necklace and a trip to Mexico. And she went, 
Huh? You weren't supposed to tell me. <laughs> and I said, I know, don't worry. I didn't actually get you a necklace on a trip to Mexico. I just knew that you didn't actually want to know. So she's like, okay, touche. Oh, uh, so it's like, yeah, she liked yearning to know. She didn't actually want to know. So um, right. maybe with the amount of stuff that we put out into social media and share with the world, it's better to have people uh, want more from us. I like to think, uh, you know, yeah. writing wise, you know, when I, whatever I put out in the world, writing wise is usually very succinct. And I have this, my rule of thumb is uh, if they wish I would have said a little bit more, then I've said just enough. Hmm. Man, I think that's a great place to end it, actually. Derek, <laughs> <laughs> Derek Sivers, thank you so much, brother. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you, Joshua. You. I love talking with you anytime. So thanks for having me on. All right, there are 47 more of those quarantine slash quality conversations over at theminimalists.com slash support. Also, as I mentioned this week, Ryan and I, we're going to go in depth on the Minimalist private podcast. We're going to talk about the last 10 years, some of our achievements, some of our biggest failures, some of the lessons we've learned. But I wanted to sum it up with uh, this essay that I wrote. If, if I were to sum up the last 10 years, the lessons that I've learned in, in one essay, it's a recent essay that I wrote over at theminimalists.com. It's called, What is Clutter? Our clutter isn't relegated only to our material things. We clutter our lives with destructive relationships, careers, obligations, rituals, busyness, minutia, news, media, politics, gossip, drama, rumors. We clutter our attention with glowing screens. We clutter our creativity with distractions. We clutter our free time with trivialities. We clutter our desires with attachments. Our lives are brimming with existential clutter, emotional clutter, mental clutter, spiritual clutter, so much so that it's hard to distinguish what is clutter and what is not. We are stressed out, overwhelmed, and anxious because we filled our lives with disorder, chaos, though there is a solution. Look at an object, a commitment, a habit, does it bring tranquility or increase your well-being? If not, let it go. Not an easy fix, but a simple one. Now, I think when Ryan and I first started this journey, and Sean can attest to this, he's been here for the vast majority of it. When Ryan and I first started this journey, it did start because we were overwhelmed with stuff. And our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. And so... By letting go of those external things, I was able to, over the last decade, really deal with a lot of this other clutter. As I said in the essay, our clutter is not relegated only to our material things. I think it starts with the stuff. That's the initial bite at the apple. But that changes everything else. You're able to look inward and, and deal with the busyness, deal with the minutia, deal with the media clutter, deal with the glowing screens to a great extent. And so minimalism can apply way beyond the stuff. I want you to keep that in mind because you'll often start with the stuff or you'll struggle with the stuff. But when we're done struggling with the stuff, the struggle doesn't end. It opens up a world of possibilities for decluttering. 
decluttering our life of all of these complexities to make room for what's truly important. All right, before we get into our listener tips and our added value segment today, let me encourage you to become a private podcast supporter. You know, this podcast is 100% advertisement free. That's because of this small group of five or 6,000 people who decide to support the Minimalist podcast. And because of that, actually two thirds of our podcast is on the Minimalist private podcast. It's really a space where Ryan and I can let our hair down. We can talk about things in private or semi-public with an understanding group of people who allow us to fail and screw up out loud in real time. It's a different experience from our public podcast, but it's a much deeper experience as well. Maybe it doesn't reach the same broad audience that this podcast reaches, but it goes a lot deeper into the things beyond the clutter and the deeper conversations we also have with our guests. This week, Ryan and I are really going to go deep into our 10-year history and even a bit before that as well. If you want to check all that out, we encourage you to just try it out for a week or a month. It's cheaper than a cup of coffee. You can head on over to theminimalists.com slash support to subscribe and get your personal link so that our private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. By the way, if you become a supporter, you also get the entire back catalog. We're talking hundreds of hours of past private podcast episodes. We think you'll enjoy those. Of course, you can walk away at any time if you feel like it's not adding value to your life. Let's see, we got some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners as well. Check them out. Hello from the UK. I was recently listening to the podcast on a minimalist Christmas from the 1st of December and I wanted to share with you some of the things that we do with regards to gift giving. Um, My family absolutely love to give gifts to show their love and appreciation and I usually make a homemade gift for some of our family members which is appreciated so much more than I ever anticipated that it would be We do either baked goods, homemade decorations, um, wreaths made from foraged foliage. So it's a really fun thing to do with the family in the lead up to Christmas to make all of these gifts ready to give to them on Christmas Day. And I think that they just appreciate it so much more than a bought gift because it is so heartfelt and the time and effort that's gone into it. So hopefully that helps somebody um, have a nice Christmas. Hi, this is Shelley Lipman, and I'm from Windsor, Connecticut. I had a thought regarding shredding. There's a lot of people who don't want to purchase a shredder, but all of a sudden they'll be cleaning out and they have a lot of shredding to do. So here's a couple of ideas. The first one is to call your local banks. A lot of them will offer free shred days, and you don't have to uh, belong to that bank to take advantage of that. If you don't want to hold on to the shredding until a bank has a free shred day, the other option is to call places like Easterfields, who work with people with disabilities. A lot of them will have shredding operations, and for a pretty reasonable fee, will shred all of your stuff, and the money goes back to Easterfields, and it offers, um, you know, a, employment for people who have disabilities. All right, y'all, for our added value segment this week. Well, it's the end of the year, right? It's our 10-year anniversary. It's also the end of 2020. What a year it has been. But there's been a highlight of the year for me, and it's been music. Every year, I think this is my 10th year doing this now, or close to that, I put together a like a top 10 list. Sometimes there's 12 songs, some, or sometimes there's 12 albums, sometimes there's seven, but it's my top 10 albums of the year, or top however many albums of the year. And 2020 has been a... a surprisingly great year for music. There there have been some that really surprised me. I I think there are some folks that are releasing music 
that otherwise wouldn't have released music. And I, I think we're, yeah, of course, my, my taste, is, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know my taste is fairly eclectic everywhere from singer-songwriter to atmospheric music to 90s rap music. Like there's, uh, there's not a whole lot that connects it all. It's a, a beautiful collage of, of sound. In fact, if there's anything that, that connects it all, it's just I really enjoy music. I like having a soundtrack to my life. And so if you head on over to theminimalists.com slash sound, that's where I put all every list. So this this year's 2020 list, but you can find the past year's list as well. The the top 10 albums of 2020, theminimalists.com slash sound. All right, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing really exciting that's going on in the life of the minimalists. In just a few weeks, on January 1st, our new documentary, it's called Less Is Now, will be on Netflix. You can check out the trailer on our YouTube channel. We'll, put, we'll have a link to it there. Actually, you know what? Let's just put a link to it in the show notes. We should have the trailer out by the time this episode comes out. You can check it out. Less Is Now. It's a, an expansion, a deep expansion into minimalism. We went out. We talked to a bunch of everyday minimalists, people who were profoundly affected by our first film. But we also went out and went deeper with some experts. We had folks like Dave Ramsey or TK Coleman, but also Annie Leonard and uh, Danae Barahona and, and, and several other people who really helped us dive deep into these different areas of relationships and the environment and uh, dealing with uh, spiritual clutter, internal clutter, uh, the economy as well. You know, we, 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 there are obviously economic implications with respect to minimalism. We address all of this in a relatively short film. It's less than an hour long. It was really important to us to make this as short as possible. I, I was really hoping to get really close to 40 minutes. We didn't get to 40, but hundreds of hours of footage that ended in less than an hour. That really is what minimalism or simplifying is about, right? It's about about removing that excess and getting really down, getting down to the essence what is truly important. A lot of stuff hit the cutting room floor, a lot of really great stuff, but the ultimate finished film is, I think you're going to find it to be really meaningful. I know I certainly have, and uh, I couldn't be happier with it. it the first time in, it, we were going through this so, in so many iterations, and eventually I, I feel like, oh, wow, we've made something that can stand up to our first film. One of the most difficult things to do is say, Wow, how can, we, how can we beat that? Well, we didn't try to beat that. What we tried to do is live up to the same standards, but then also improve upon it, expand upon this vision of minimalism. So less is now. We'll hit Netflix on January 1st, New Year's Day, 2021. You can check that out. All right, you can follow The Minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Minimalists. Come to one of our live podcast shows. Visit theminimalists.com slash tour to find a city near you. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. You can comment on this episode at youtube.com slash theminimalists. If you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. You'll also receive our simple Sunday emails whenever we send those. And if you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need 
Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 